Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the wonky show. Gavin Williamson has sent a letter. We'll try to decode the contents. Uh, Super complaints are on the horizon. We have some cheering details. And Chris Skidmore is back. It's all coming up. You know, I mean, the messaging for me is quite clear and has been for some time. They want fewer people to go to university. And I guess they wanted to kind of turn it back into a a kind of a a high level, high status academic top slicing. Um, And 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 push everyone else into you know level four and five courses elsewhere welcome to the wonky show your direct way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis i'm your host jim dickinson and here to help us work out whether to risk booking a summer holiday this year as ever we have two fabulous guests uh, in Oxfordshire, Mary Kernop-Cook is a higher education expert and serial non-exec director. Mary, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, morning, everyone. Um, well, I've done a couple of events this week on a new platform called Clubhouse. Uh, I don't know if either of you have uh, come across it yet, but basically it's Zoom without the video. Um, in other words, a conversation that you can have without your lipstick on. And it's different and it's a bit more sort of laid back. Um, I had a, a great conversation about young people taking on portfolio careers from an early age rather than at my sort of age and how they need different preparation for that possibility um so yeah i think it's a it's an interesting way of having a a a conversation and uh yeah so check out clubhouse at an app store near you clubhouse how fascinating right i'll be right on to that uh and in london stephen spear is vice chancellor at kingston university stephen your highlight of the week well i've been uh my my professional and personal background is in the creative industries and i've been very concerned for a few years about um, a series of measures that um, pull out support for education in the creative industries, although it's the fastest growing sector of the economy. And so I got a piece um, about that published in Creative Review that asks if the government is really joining itself up. It's, you know, Biz is saying one thing about an industrial strategy and the DFE is uh, is doing another. Well, excellent. And that you know, can very much recommend the piece. We'll put a link in the show notes if you haven't seen it. So, good. We start this week with some regulation news. Secretary of State for education gavin williamson has written to the office for students setting out a selection of strategic priorities mary was this a poisoned pen letter oh god uh it's pretty long seven pages um and it starts with what i thought was a slightly mealy-mouthed thank you to michael barber and welcoming lord wharton the new chair of the ofs and it covers just about everything you can think of we've got mental health financial sustainability smooth admissions this summer quality and standards, which of course must be driven up as soon as possible, Um, PQA, reduction in bureaucracy, um, watch out for recruiting too many people from China, a bit of anti-Semitism, free speech slash academic freedom, and uh, so on. Um, I thought uh, it it also says that they want the sector to uh, interpret the government's formal response to the Pierce review as, as the strategic guidance about what to do with TEF and 
Um, so I, I reread that as well. And interestingly, when you read the government's response to the TEF, it says they'll set out more details in their strategic guidance. So there's a little <laughs> uh, circular path to go around there if you're interested. Um, uh, mixed messaging about free speech and academic freedom will apparently be much clearer in a future policy paper on the topic. Um, I, I think Gavin Williamson, I don't think, was quite convinced by Michael Barber's recent speech on the topic and he wants OFS to take much more active and visible action in this space. So, um, yeah, wait uh, wait with uh, interest on that one. Um, I'm a bit concerned about access and participation. There's a, 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 an emphasis on high-quality courses and not just more students on low-quality courses, as they call them. So um, I think no, no more bums on seats unless they're disadvantaged and high-quality um, and an emphasis on cold spots and white working-class boys, which is music to my ears, as you'll appreciate. Um, urging schools again to work with schools to raise attainment and this phrase equality of opportunity not outcome which we might want to talk about i think i think basically we've got further signaling of a, a change of focus from widening participation towards fair access at the, at the top end of the sector which after all is where the biggest gaps are um the other eye-catching idea in this letter is the possibility of revoking degree awarding powers at subject level um so i had to think about that and i thought it probably wasn't a very student-centric thing to do and oh well this is just you know it's, it's another set of messaging that tells us basically that the government doesn't want more people to go to university unless it's kind of top proper universities uh you know read all this alongside the skills for jobs white paper high quality alternatives and so on and and you know the big question is will the alternatives be high enough quality so that we don't just end up with the middle classes continuing to go to uni and the rest being diverted to i don't know level 4 and 5 outcomes at fe colleges but i don't know where you want to start on this one we could pick almost well, any higher I education mean, topic it's a good question so stephen this thing about um you know low quality courses the ofs you know subject level kind of you know baselines and then this <laughs> this kind of extension of the threat in the letter telling ofs to think about, I'm not even sure if I can do this legally, but revoke degree awarding powers at subject level based on these baselines. I mean, where, you know, where do you think this will go next, and what will that do to HE if it all comes true? Well, it's 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 hard to know, isn't it? I mean, the letter does read like it's written by a former chief whip, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> so that's unfortunate, um, and it is as Mary's described it. Um, it is rather contradictory in places. On the one hand, the OFS is supposed to um, be lighter touch and more risk-based, and yet uh, in certain areas, it's supposed to be much more in interventionist. And there are some things in there which are um, highly political, or rather um, touch buttons for um, a certain part of the political class. So I do worry that the OFS is becoming increasingly politicized. It is supposed to be an independent regulator. Uh, the appointment of the new chief, ex uh, the new chair, of course, is a highly political appointment, and the letter is really pushing all of um, all, a lot of buttons that um, will play to um, a certain segment of um, the political establishment. Yeah, I mean, Mary, this the, the other thing that blew up this week was um, Labour noticed that James Wharton was a political appointment. Um, <laughs> And you know, I, I actually stuck a press release out and got a bit, 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 bit of press coverage. But you know, having a, a highly political appointee 
chairing a regulator that doesn't really intervene in some of the ways that the letter suggests, particularly on freedom of speech, he's going to get caught. He's going to get caught caught in the middle, isn't he? Between two very different kind of you know sets of views about what OFS is for. Yeah, I think so. Um, having said that, you know this this is what happens, isn't it? You know the the the, the party in power you know, will put its own people, people who support broadly its policy directions into into those positions. So, so I don't think it's that strange, really. I mean, you know, whether he has to resign the whip or not, I, to me, it doesn't make much difference because he's, he's going to vote with the Conservatives anyway, isn't he? Um, I think that, you know, the question will be is can he, can he establish himself as um, <clears throat> a thoughtful and balanced regulator in in the sector while obviously having to you know try to follow the strategic guidance from from the department and you know he's he's got lots of opportunities to do that so you know watch out for his first speeches and his first uh interventions Stephen do you think we're any closer to understanding what a you know low quality or low value course is as a result of any of this stuff not Really, <laughs> I mean, although, well, except there's clear indications in there that um, because he, he supports the use um, of absolute metrics, which the OFS has been developing, which take no account of where, um, where a student is starting from in terms of their attainment. So that is a pretty clear indication, um, as Mary was suggesting, that that'll drive a lot of decisions by universities about who they take. And clearly, they, clearly we're trying to get more people um, to choose FE instead of HE. So, well, and I support the idea that FE should be uh, an attractive option for people. But there's a lot of professional vocational education that is done by universities, and that seems to be not understood um, by the DFE and certainly in the letter. Um, so there seems to be this binary thinking between the research intensive universities and FE, but, you know, you know, who's educating the nurses, the teachers, you know, uh, a good part of the engineers that go into industry, you know, it's not happening at either end of those poles. And I, and I, and I'm kind of looking for, um, for some support for those kinds of universities of which Kingston is one of them and I'm struggling to find it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the letter does read, doesn't it, Mary, as if there's, you know, there's, there's making, you know, applications to elite universities fairer. I mean, he actually says some, you know, words to that effect when he's talking about the way in which he's grabbed hold of the admissions review. Um, and then, you know, more vaguely talks about the way in which the sector might support his white paper reforms. But th there is this massive kind of gap, isn't there, in everything that comes from the government about, you know, vocational and technical HE that is happening in HE now. Yeah, I mean, I can't help feeling that there's, um, you know, without actually saying it out loud, they're kind of trying to unpick um, uh, the... 1992 reforms that made the polytechnics into universities you know they found themselves with higher education being massified you know with whatever it is close to 50 percent of young people um going to higher education and basically they can't afford it um and that you know they want more people to do things that are less costly to uh to fund and indeed that get outcomes that are economically useful particularly post-brexit and and post covid um, so, uh, you know, I mean, the messaging for me is quite clear and has been for some time. They want fewer people to go to university. And I guess they wanted to kind of turn it back into a, a kind of a, a high level, high status academic top slicing. 
um, and 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 push everyone else into uh, you know level four and five courses elsewhere. Now the the main problem with that, of course, is that it, it won't cure the so-called academic vocational divide. It won't get parity of esteem. It'll it'll make it worse, and I think it'll just drive a you know a class divide between the middle classes who will continue to send their try to send their their children to university and kind of everyone else who who does something else, which might also be valuable, but I don't think serves a kind of an equality agenda. So, so I think this is this is kind of tough for them because they're really trying to unpick, you know, the last 25 years of um, of reforms and, and what most of us would think of as progress. Mm. And, and Stephen, there is this other line in there, isn't there, that Mary highlighted about, um, you know, equality where... He says, I would like to remind the OFS that it has a statutory duty to have regard to the need to promote equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. <laughs> you know, I said at our event the other day, um, and he was referencing the Liz Trust speech. And, and I, you know, I said at our event the other day, given Michael Barber has just spent three or four years setting up a regulator that he's obsessed only with outcomes. <laughs> it's quite a thing to write a letter saying, I'd like to remind you not to focus on outcomes and only to focus on opportunity. But, you know, could could this signal, you know, a completely different approach on access and participation? Or is this just a bit of, you know, kind of political saber rattling? Oh, it's hard to know. I mean, yeah, the sector has been working to into outcomes for some time now. You know, for students, it's about learning outcomes. We are increasingly measured with... You know, not about um, just um, on access, not just about getting people in. That's why I don't like the term widening participation. It's actually getting them out and getting them out with a good degree and good skills. So in that sense, you know, I mean, I, I support the government's objective there to ensure that, um, you know, students in university, no matter their background, get a good education. So, um but we're, we are starting to, as you suggest, you know, talk about inputs versus outputs. And, you know, how you get a student there is um, – that's the art, isn't it? I mean, that's where, you know, universities will do different things and some universities will take those uh, undergraduate education more seriously. Some are much better at um, providing a good education to students from disadvantaged backgrounds than others. I mean, that's the, um, that's the variety and the richness in the sector. Uh, and that's why outcomes-based um, measures are right. So as long as they also um, take some account of where you're starting from, you know, you want to close the attainment gap. That that attainment gap is um, is an issue that starts already, um, you know, when the child is born. Yeah. Actually. And and Mary, just quickly on um, freedom of speech and 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 well, <laughs> the Chaucer clause. So he obviously doesn't mention Chaucer or Leicester, but I mean, you know, I mean, there's a big Chaucer and Leicester sticker in the letter. Um, and let's just remind ourselves what he says. So he says. I, I, I honestly, I have to say, I think this, you know, DK reckons that this letter isn't very well drafted. I think this paragraph is a work of art, right? So the, the paragraph, just let's just remind ourselves, says, while providers are rightly free to determine the content of their courses, university administrators and heads of faculty should not, whether for ideological reasons or to conform to the perceived desires of students, pressure or force teaching staff to drop authors or texts that add rigour and stretch to a course. OFS should robustly challenge providers that have implemented such policies and clearly support individual individual academics whose academic freedom is being diminished. I mean, what on earth do we make of that couple of sentences? Oh, God. Um I, you know, this the, the, this is such complex territory, and and I think I'm, I think I'm with you. You know, the, these are these are kind of tricky things. Not not just the um, free speech and academic freedom stuff, but but the rest of it. You know, which I, I agree. I, d- I don't think the government has found a very 
convincing voice um, about how to express what it's really trying to do. So everything comes sort of slightly shrouded um, uh, and and difficult to unpick. Um, but, uh, you know, my thinking is that they're, they're on a real hiding to nothing on this one because, um, you know, freedom, academic freedom is um, kind of ensconced in, in law, isn't it? And uh, I'm not sure the regulator has the authority to intervene in that way. Stephen, I'm particularly taken with the line, you know, the bit where he says, universities shouldn't conform to the perceived desires of students. Now, out, look, outside of the specific, you know, Leicester case, isn't, I thought the whole point of running a sort of market in HE was to conform to the perceived desires of students. So I, I, I don't, it, are we supposed to impose courses on students? I don't, I like, what I, well, this just, those are just, that and the last time were just some of the contradictions in the letter, aren't they? Um, you know, it is called the Office for Students, after all, uh, and we're about to um, clearly um, scrap the NSS, which is, um, you know, a national annual um, um, student voice, actually. So it is quite contradictory. And, and as far as academic freedom goes, I thought that was rather populist, that, I mean, shockingly populist, those three paragraphs. Um, and... Um, and not evidence-based, even the way it's written, talks about, you know, reported incidents. And, I mean, where are these reported incidents? And how many are there? And it's the same thing with the um, the paragraph about anti-Semitism. It seems that, you know, um, it seems to be a problem, but we're asking the OFS to look into whether it is a problem. Uh, so, there are, that's 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 the worrying thing, that there are really quite populist um populist sound bites in here, um, which really are beneath... The, um, the dignity of a regulator to look at. You know. yeah, the shame about the letter is that it rather confuses or obscures uh, the central government agenda, uh, a lot of which I support. You know, we should be raising the stature and the quality of FE. We should be addressing uh, the skills gap. Um, and we should be looking in higher education at outcomes rather than inputs. You know, we should be ensuring the students can continue uh, guaranteeing a degree quality that they're getting the skills that they need to go out and prosper in the world and and mary just before we come you know, just before we move on i mean the other thing that's mentioned in here is the um the admissions review which you know i said on the site earlier on in the week two let two strategic letters in a row ministers were saying we're really pleased to see that OFS is running an admissions review good all power to your elbow do keep us in the loop now of course DFE has just taken over the admissions review and is instructing OFS to help out with its review that's all a bit of a mess isn't it where you know who's looking after admissions policy well I I think it is and of course um, you know let's just say uh, that the DFE consultation comes out with a you know a consensus about what to do next. Who has the power to make that happen? Um, you know, is it, is it really unclear? You know, in the past, it's always been a a sort of uh, um, gentleman's consensus uh, between UCAS and and the and the universities um, to, to to make changes to the admissions service. Um, so, so it's not at all clear to me who you know who decides what should happen next and and who has any power to enforce it. But more than that, um, you know, I bear the scars, Jim, as you'll remember from about ten years ago, doing a you know what I thought was a really thorough piece of work on whether PQA could be implemented and how it would be implemented. And um, 
<clears throat> we did a consultation which the sector answered, you know, with huge um, conscientiousness and, and uh, real thought, which made me change my mind about um, about whether PQA would be the right solution. What I don't see in the current consultation you know, is enough about how this process impacts on all the various players in the system. It isn't just about universities and students. It's about exam boards and exam markers. It's about regulators. It's about schools and colleges and students and parents. I mean, one of the things, by the way, that, we, <laughs> that surprised us when we consulted on PQA 10 years ago was that actually parents said, hang on, we want to go on holiday in the summer as well. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just... Um, <clears throat> so I, you know... Uh, all of that, leaving all of that aside, the, the real problem about this is that PQA has become the solution. And uh, in, instead, we should be saying, you know, how, how do what changes need to be made to improve uh, the prospects for disadvantaged students? Because, you know, everything rests on predicted grades being uh, the enemy of the piece. And, and actually, I think... There's plenty of analysis around, and, and I hope will be published soon on a, a series of essays that Happy's publishing. You know, saying that predicted grades probably do far more good for um, disadvantaged students and widening participation than harm. You know, so I, th I think this one, I, I think there's a an outside chance that the DfE will get a bit of a bloody nose on this consultation because when people really start to think about it, they realise that this isn't going to this isn't going to fix very much, and it's actually going to create many more problems than it solves. Well, exciting stuff! And if you'd like to uh, engage more in this debate about the future of admissions, our wonky at home event on the second of March, the future shape of admissions, uh, you can book now on wonky.com forward slash events, where you'll find an agenda and details of speakers. Good, right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name's Graham Atherton. I'm Director of the National Education Opportunities Network, or NEON. This piece is about the forthcoming proposed changes to the Level 3 qualification landscape. This move to a binary A-level, T-level system, cutting out BTEC, could spell real bad news for widening access to higher education. Uh, the piece I've just recently written is based on a report we released this week, which shows that around a quarter of students entering HE, well, young students are entering HE, from the low participation neighbourhoods are entering with either A-levels and BTECs or BTECs alone. Um, if, uh, on the, on alongside this, we did a survey of nearly 50 of our members in NEON and showed they're very, very pessimistic and concerned about what's going to happen when we shift the BTECs. Away from BTEC, sorry, and um, the impact this could have on widening access. They believe that the students that take BTEC, the widening access students, that will not be able or willing to take A levels and T levels won't provide uh, an option for them. So, certainly, this could set widening access back some years unless we see, hopefully, uh, some change. But uh, I'm not sure I've missed it. We are on that one. My name is Susanna Kalatowski and I'm Head of Policy at University Alliance. This week, I wrote about the fact that the two centerpieces of the government's HE policy, tackling low-quality courses and increasing flexible, lifelong learning, are increasingly at odds. It didn't have to be this way. They're not inherently contradictory. The problem seems to come down to the fact that DfE and the OFS think the best way to assess quality is to focus on student outcomes, namely continuation, completion and progression. These outcomes are unevenly distributed across different groups of students, subjects, and employment sectors, and they're closely correlated to entry tariffs, socioeconomic background, and geography. 
it's difficult to see how flexible provision can flourish in this landscape. If you ask universities why they don't offer more of it, conversation quickly turns to the test. Continuation and completion rates for modules and short courses tend to be lower than for full-time courses. With the pandemic-induced recession, meaning even more people will need to upskill and retrain, it's arguably never been more important to properly invest in and incentivize flexible provision. University Alliance and, and many others have been calling for this for some time, but the government's relentless focus on narrow student outcomes, particularly if they are not benchmarked, means there's a real risk that universities will be discouraged from embracing this agenda. The approach to regulating HE quality needs to change for flexible provision to truly take off. Now, the Office of the Independent Adjudicator has been out this week, putting the finishing touches to a new process for mass complaints. Stephen, what's going on here? Well, indeed, what is going on here? The office, <laughs> the OIA is the, um, is the last stop for student complaints. Um, so every university has a very uh, evolved uh, complaints procedure, um, and you would hope that everything or most everything could get resolved within a university and not go to the OIA. Um, and now we seem to be um, opening up the door to the OIA's um, going around all of that uh, to look at mass complaints. So, um, so I am a little bit confused about um, about what they're doing. Well, the role of the OIA is really to ensure that um, the university has um, has followed its own procedures and indeed that those procedures are robust and appropriate. So, uh, and until now, that has been um, individual uh, student, uh, student cases. So, so, you know, a group complaint is, um, I don't know quite how the OIA is going to deal with that because... Uh, that will presumably have gone around the university's own procedures. It'll cut across various universities. I'm not sure the OIA is the right venue for any of that. Um, it might be the OFS. It could be the DFE, depending on what the complaint is. But I'm not sure the OIA is the right place for that. Mary, uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm not. Uh, I'm definitely not Felicity Mitchell. But <laughs> I guess what <laughs> I guess what uh, OIA would say would be, look, you know, pragmatically. We reckon there's going to be a huge number of complaints that are really similar, so we may as well try and deal with them in in groups. But but are there unintended consequences? Do you think? Um, yeah, there, I mean, there, there probably are. But I mean, if if I'm thinking about the students who I think, on the whole, have had a pretty rotten time uh, through no fault of their own, and and actually probably through no fault of most universities either. Um, and it does seem to me that um, there's a there's a reasonable case for you know a kind of a class action, if you like, uh, for for students to say, hang on, you know, we we paid for one thing and we've got we've got less than that in some way. It it seems to me kind of a reasonable approach. Now, um, I haven't looked into the ins and outs of what the, how the OIA is um, proposing to do it, but I think you know the, the the university sector certainly doesn't want to be kind of tied up in hundreds of thousands of individual complaints if uh, a kind of a group approach to it would would come to a sort of reasonable settlement if indeed students have a um reasonable grounds to to have any kind of compensation so i think on the whole i you know i think this is this is good for students I, you know i think i think back to my my own kids you know, even even now, they would they would kind of struggle to um, to kind of engage with a, a process like this. And 
I, th- I think it's really hard for young people to kind of figure out what to do if if they have got a complaint. And, and I guess the, the student union, the NUS and others will, you know, will have a big role to play in all of this. Um, so, so, so I think on the on the whole, I'm kind of pro the idea of being able to kind of look at this in the round um, rather than just, you know, leaving hundreds of thousands of cases going through the system over a number of a number of years and perhaps coming out with a kind of a, a sector wide um, settlement of, of some sort. But maybe that's um, heresy to <laughs> even. And, <laughs> well, I mean, Jim, I don't know. But, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously OIA and it does say this in the document. OIA can't look at things you know, across the sector. Actually, it's not going to tr- it's not going to look at mass complaints from a sort of cross sector point of view. Um, what it can do is, you know, bunch them together in institutions. But I mean, isn't that, I mean, that's, you know, are we headed towards something strange here? So, Stephen, you know, your president, um, what's his name, Faisal, um, you know, if he's got, you know, if, 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 if president of the Students Union, if he's got, you know, 2,000 students saying, you know, I don't know, you know, Kingston promised me X and I didn't get it. And, you know, you, you're going, well, you know, it's been a pandemic and, you know, this is what we said to you last summer in terms of, you know, what would change in restrictions. It, wouldn't it be odd if someone from Reading, from OIA turns up and then referees this row? I mean, that would be strange, wouldn't it? But it, it, it feels like that's where we're heading. Yeah, students have obviously had a very difficult time at university. This, you know, it is not uh, a during a pandemic, they've not had um, the experience in the round that they would have wanted or would have expected. That that is true. So, uh, and the same would go for university staff. And you know, universities have tried very hard under very trying circumstances um, to give students a good education and a good experience. But you know, this is not the way you would prefer to go through university or to run a university. <laughs> that that is obvious. But for the real complaint, I mean, that's the real complaint for the students, you know, on a, on a, and that I think pushes the whole issue into a different realm, which is not about the OIA, which is about compliance with, um, with your regulations, compliance with what you said, you know, are you complying with the um, Competition and Markets Authority? You know, that's all the kind of legalese part of it. The real issue, of course, is political. Um, it seems to me, and that is um, why I think that this is the wrong venue for this conversation. You know, you know, are the students? Um, you know, what could be the what could be the possible remedies for the students to get around these? And I think most of those remedies sit with the government, or or more specifically, probably with the treasury. Uh, you know, there was the call um, from I think it was seven vice chancellors that you know you could forgive the interest on the loan payments, for instance. I mean, is you know, there are, what is a possible remedy from the OIA unless you actually did break a promise? But, but I would think that, that the OIA, which is, you know, quasi, quasi legal, I would, I would doubt that they will be able to find in the favor of the students on a legal basis. Yeah. A, a sensible way through what in the end is a kind of big political problem. Um, Mary, uh, you know, if, if, if you were looking ac- across the piece and you were saying to yourself, right, I now have the power to, you know, solve the grievances that uh, you know lo- collectively students have. What what would what would what would be uh, what what would what would your magic wand do? Yeah, well, it's it's a tough one, isn't it? You know, and you only need to think back to the um, the pension strikes. You know, when universities were saying, "Hey, you know, you're paying for more than just teaching," and now we're saying, "Well, um, you know, you're getting the teaching, so don't worry that you haven't got the rest of it." 
I, I really think universities are in a difficult place here because um, some of them might think that the right thing to do is to make some sort of financial compensation against uh, fees, you know, even though that wouldn't make a huge amount of difference to most students in terms of repaying their student loans. But they can't do that because that would be an admission that they'd not been delivering quality. And, you know, the regulator will then kind of beat them over the head with a with a stick. Um, so so for me, yes, um, I agree with Stephen. It, it is political. And I think it's a, you know, it's another manifestation of the sort of general um, unpopularity of the university sector that, that the government hasn't been prepared to step in and do something which, um, you know, goes some way to compensating students for what is um, undoubtedly uh, a lesser experience than they feel that they were signing up for and, and paying for. Um, uh, but helping universities, you know, who are who would 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 take a very big financial hit if if something like this came along. So um, I'm kind of still holding out hope that maybe the government will do something. But maybe I should um, not wait. Hope too springs long. eternal. I mean, I mean, one of the I mean, one of the contradictions, and this is the problem with the OIA being involved, is that uh, universities are independent entities, and yet. Uh, and yet the pandemic, of course, has been a global problem. So there is a sector-wide issue here, uh, and it can't be dealt with by individual universities. You know, I mean, that each university decides by itself what it's going to do or what it could do. Uh, so it does seem that the government needs to sit down with the universities and, and find a way, you know, can we somehow uh, address the grievances by the students? You know, I mean, you know, we've done a fantastic job. We spent a huge amount of money, by the way, uh, to try and give the students a good education, a good experience. But it is not a normal university experience. It just cannot be. But that is a national problem that probably needs a national uh, a national conversation between the government and the universities. Well, fascinating stuff. Well, obviously, uh, keep up to date with developments on the site. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. Um, if you were to pitch up at an English university in the middle of the 19th century um, and ask to see the research facilities, you would be very disappointed because there, there were none. Firstly, the universities were mostly concerned with uh, non-experimental sciences, so you, you wouldn't be shown to any great laboratories. There were some laboratories that students were allowed to, to do things in. But original research was not, even in the humanities, something that they thought was important. So much so that if you go to the work of Cardinal Newman, his um, very important lectures, uh, on the idea of the university, he's quite dismissive of the idea of generating uh, um, new knowledge. Uh, if the object of a university was scientific and philosophical discover discovery, I do not see why a university should have students. He's very clear that it's not any of their business. And, and certainly there are plenty of examples, and, and Oxford does very well at coming up with these examples, of why universities uh, shouldn't do research, they shouldn't do science, this isn't their business. Uh, discovery of knowledge is, is nothing much to do with them. So one of the great reformers of the University of Oxford is uh, the Master of Balliol, Benjamin Jowett, um, and he has this great idea uh, that he, he reforms all sorts of things at universities, hated by some conservatives, but one of the things he's very clear on is that we, you know, research is 
is not the kind of thing that his university should be doing because it threatened the whole tutorial and examination system which was making Oxford into the highest of high school for boys. So for him, it was a really bad thing and he came up with this idea, someone talking to him, um, research, the master exclaimed, research, he said, a mere excuse for idleness. It has never achieved and will never achieve results of the slightest value. So this is the head of Balliol, uh, very clear that, that this is this is not something that should happen. Clearly, there's a, an ongoing movement. There's what you get is this interaction between the new universities, places like Manchester, who start to borrow the apparatus of the research university, which is developed in the US and developed from Germany, and they work out that actually useful knowledge is a useful to the locale, but actually is generating new things. So they do, both do a, a, what we might think of as applied, but also basic research. So you start to get a development. Um, Cambridge sets up the Cavendish Laboratory in 1874 and gets an extraordinary range of people who, who come. Nobel Prizes developed very quickly. Uh, you know, the fundamentals of the universe are understood by people at Cambridge. Uh, this idea that we should advance knowledge is, is now seen as something they sh- uh, that we should get on to do. Um, there is an association with um, uh, Lord Kelvin, who's at Glasgow University for an extraordinary amount of time. Uh, but this is a man who um, perfects underwater cables, who does temperature, who does all sorts of things, you know, you know polyglot of, of thinking about what a university should be doing, discovering things. But uh, in other places, this is still seen as, as definitely a, a bad idea. And it only really um, finally gets cemented after the First World War, when the useful knowledge that universities have contributed towards the war is actually seen by both government and by society as something that is, is worth reflecting. And it certainly wins the argument finally in Oxford that you know university research is the kind of thing that they should be doing and they start to set up the major facilities that they have uh, and, it, and it really kicks on from there. Good. Now, it uh, as we record, it's Thursday and it's the spring, uh, or at least it's the early part of the year. So uh, a, a fresh batch of data is out from HESA this week on widening participation. The UK Performance Indicators data, DK, has done a dive. The curious thing about the HESA UK Performance Indicators is, is how old-fashioned they now feel. The time-honoured and respected use of a benchmark now clashes oddly with the absolutism now expressed in the Quality and Standards Consultation. Compared to the microfidelity of the access and participation dashboard data, the simplicity of the old Polar Quintile 1 versus the rest approach is surprisingly blunt. Even Polar now feels like a first draft of Tundra, or a poor proxy for indices of multiple deprivation. So what's the use of UKPIs? Well, the other one still gets used in TEF, but that's kind of outside the scope of this segment. The widening participation UKPI still remains, for me, the best way of understanding how an individual provider is serving low participation groups. The best way to do this is comparing against the benchmark. There's actually two benchmarks here, of course. The regular one looks at entry qualifications and subject areas, and there's an even nicer one that adds region of domicile. All of these link participation to socio-economic capital and the compulsory sector education, factors that we know determine more of the course of a life than we might be comfortable with. The idea of HE as a truly life-changing experience is actually quite hard to back up in the data. Now, as well as an established and sadly England-only KPI, the Office for Students has got a KPM, a key performance measure that looks at young participation by Paula Quintal 1 at the most selective of providers. The projections behind this KPM, taking into account targets expressed in provider access and participation plans, would see the participation gap between Polar Quintile 1 and Polar Quintile 5 disappear entirely. 
We are not given details of the 31 English high-tariff providers that are used in this calculation, so I used the Russell Group as a proxy. Here we see that just 6.69% of the 2019-20 young undergraduate intake were from Polar Quintile 1. This is up, admittedly, from 6.55% last year and 6.51% the year before. So things are improving, but to me at least, not fast enough. All the graphs behind this are in an article on Wonky, and you can track the performance of any provider against their benchmarks. Good. And finally, former Universities Minister Chris Skidmore popped up in Parliament this week to chat essay mills. Let's have a quick listen. Time and time again, in this dark underworld of essay mills and the companies that seek to make a profit out of the insecurity and desperation of students, the common theme that emerged was of exploitation. Exploitation of students, particularly vulnerable students under pressure to do well in their studies, on students who are first in the family to attend university, on whom the pressure to succeed is immense. International students away from home for the first time. Not to mention exploitation of graduates abroad, some of the poorest countries in the world who are being forced to work 12-hour shifts writing essays for $1 an hour. Exploitation of graduates and students at home, so desperate for extra money that they are paying, they're selling their essays for £10, which in turn will be sold on for £300. Stephen, what do we do about contract cheating? ban essay mills. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Ireland is is banning them, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Um, You know, universities do what they can. We educate students what what plagiarism is. We have all sorts of mechanisms to try and catch it. But, you know, these essay mills are profit-driven and they are constantly trying to find ways around around what we do. It's a cat and mouse situation. So I think if other countries can ban them, why can't we? Yeah, Yeah, Mary, I mean, on one level, surely we should just ban these things, but but are they bannable? I mean, you know, most of them operate offshore, don't they? I mean, this is, they, you know, that, won't they just find their way back in somehow? You know, well, m- <clears throat> maybe, but um, banning them, I think, is is a must, and it's it's been done elsewhere, as Stephen said. And um, by the way, I bought an essay online um, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> um, so I, it was you know when the first kind of flurry of people calling for bans on essay cheating websites came up and and I commissioned an essay on contract uh, cheating whether you could <laughs> where exactly whether you could successfully uh, you know from a legal point of view whether there was a legal case for banning them and I got uh, you know I paid my 150 quid or whatever for a 2-1 um uh, standard essay and uh you know I got I got the the argument back I I couldn't find it in time for this um this recording but um, you know, the reality is, if you you know, if you engage with these sites, it is it is very clearly uh, a service to uh, help people cheat. And the fact that it's there means that a student, you know, who's under pressure and um, c- coming up to a deadline, might instead of going to their tutor or whatever and saying, "Look, I'm under pressure. Can I have some more time?" They might go and buy an essay. And I think if they're if it's more difficult to do that and they're more scared of, of getting caught, then they'll be less likely to, to go down that path. Because I suspect that once you've done it once, <laughs> you know, it sort of becomes um, easy to get to get hooked on it. So I really hope um, that Chris Skidmore's intervention, you know, it would be a pretty easy thing to do. And the big question is, you know, as you said, Jim, would it, would it uh, you know, would it work? Um, <clears throat> I mean, one of the things that always uh, annoys me as well is that Turnitin, you know, the, the pla- anti-plagiarism software, is used by essay mills to to, to guarantee that the essays they uh, they write for for their customers 
um, aren't going to get caught by plagiarism. So I think it'd be good if Turnitin and other similar sites um, stopped making their service available to um, to these uh, to these nefarious services. Stephen, more broadly, aren't we in a weird kind of arms race here? Because you know, won't you know, at some point, surely the technology and the AI is going to get to a point where you know cheating becomes undetectable. Don't we have to look at assessment itself? rather than, you know, this kind of arms race on trying to stop, you know, people copying. Well, I think in the in the short term, you just have to um, enter this arms race, as you've suggested. I mean, the, the irony of it, turn it in, is, um, is profiting from both ends of this is just incredible, isn't it? Um, but I don't know. Is it really? I mean, you know, most of us have, you know, mixed assessments. So there would be essays, there'd be seminars or presentations. You know, the, the idea um, always of the um, of the oral examination was to test if the work was actually yours. So I think the mechanisms are in place. We might see, um, you know, more of that being used. But most of us use a mix of assessment methods to try and get around this. And, and, and Mary, just to, you know, my, my favourite thing to do on uh, Twitter over the past few weeks, apart from, you know, the usual diet of winding people up, has been to, to constantly say, look, don't we have to be tough on the causes of uh, essay mills as well as, you know, t- tough on essay mills? And, and you know... Are, do you, are we any closer to understanding why it is that students are turning to, you know, these services? Yeah, I, I don't know about that. But I, I do feel that as universities do um, much more of their teaching and learning in smaller groups, you know, in, in the end, if if nobody in the academic community in a university knows their students individually well enough to spot when um, when when they've turned in a sort of completely unusual piece of work um, then then we have a problem but but I feel like universities mostly are moving more towards a kind of slightly more personal approach to teaching and learning um, you know less of it happening in in vast lecture theatres and so on um, and uh, you know I think in the end the universities have a, a responsibility to know enough about their students to spot the ones who are struggling in the first place and certainly to spot when you know when a struggling student suddenly turns in a word perfect you know two one or or first grade uh, piece of work Um, I I know that's kind of easy to say as an outsider but um, it does seem to me that uh, it it, in the end universities need to tackle this at at the root rather than um, you know banning essay mills is is one thing you know making it much more scary to go down that route I think is is part of it but student support um, academic support the ability to go to someone if you're struggling feel that you will be supported is is the key to it so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes do remember you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via apple podcasts or your favorite android podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Stephen, Mary, everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.